for the first part, um, I'll introduce just basically the context of all of this, and that's really looking at COVID-19, um, the, the impact of COVID-19 with respect to trust investments, and what will trigger on that is the potential for fiduciary liability. And I use the word fiduciary, not trustee, because it's potentially a broader issue that we'll encounter. Here are the questions that are going to be asked, and, and I think this is quite topical. We're not looking at a, uh, a power holder in this, so we're not looking at a settler reserve power. We're looking at a traditional trust with a trustee and beneficiaries and the trust holding investments at the trustee level, not through an intermediated company. And the two broad questions that I think the industry will be asking itself is, as trustee, what are my investment obligations? And can I effectively exclude liability for investment losses? In other words, what's my exposure if the fund starts to go into a uh, into a, a negative. So that's the relationship that we're going to concentrate on, trustee and beneficiaries. And we're going to tailor this particularly to the Singapore context. So the first question, uh, and I'll, I'll run through this and invite the, the panelists to then start to contribute is this. In Singapore, we do have a statutory duty of care. Within that statutory duty of care, it's calibrated to the uh, effective level of professionalism that the trustee has. So the duty of care of a lay individual unpaid is not the same as a trust company licensed with international operations and a heavy marketing budget. So the duty of care is, is calibrated in Singapore, but you can exclude the duty of care. Now, the question that comes up is this, within the Trustee Act in Singapore, there are other obligations that are relevant to the investment of the trust fund. And I'll run through a few, and then I invite panelists to contribute to a discussion around how, how these are practically being uh, complied with in industry. So the first one is, um, is it possible to exclude the standard investment criteria under section five of the Trustee Act? And we can go through when, we, when we're answering this, what that standard investment criteria is for, for members who are not aware of this. Uh, can we exclude uh, obtaining proper advice requirement when we're looking at changing the investments of the trust? And then can we exclude uh, effectively the need to create a policy statement where we engage external asset managers to manage the trust fund? And likewise, can we exclude the duty to review the external asset manager and the policy statement from time to time? So if I, if I may, I'll, I'll invite um, anyone that wishes to, to, to take this up at this point to talk about these standard provisions that are within the Trustee Act, the standard investment criteria, proper advice, policy statement and review. Is it common uh, that these are excluded or is it possible to exclude these requirements under the Trustee Act? What, what has been your experience of a standard Singapore trust uh, deed and the administration of the trust where we have these trustee requirements being, or uh, Trustee Act requirements being um, set out? So if I, I think, Wunham, if you, if you don't mind uh, kicking us off, in terms of the standard investment criteria, proper advice, policy statement, and then review. Is this something that you see habitually being done or is it something that is effectively excluded and not followed in practice, if, it's, if at all possible? Thanks, Zach. So I, I'll kick off. Uh, the other panelists can jump in. So um, when, when we look at this, okay, so to answer, un answer the question, the short answer is that typically we do not exclude uh, the, these duties, because the duties are actually found in Trustees Act as well as the common law. And then if you pay a professional trustee good fees, you do expect them to have certain amount of 
uh, peg that to a standard of the other licensed professional, licensed trustee. So typically we act for the families. So in that case, then we will be very, very careful about what to limit and what to exclude for the trustee because we are there to protect the family and beneficiary. But uh, where we act for the trustees, uh, typically what we see are professional trustees that are licensed by the MAS having a TCA license. And they would either act for uh, as trustees for unit trusts, REITs, uh, private unit trusts, uh, ETFs, or family trusts or charitable trusts. It wouldn't be a lay trustee. So I, I think the Trustees Act applies to both the trustees as a lay trustee as well as professional trustees. But when you deal with a professional trustee, like I said, you pay them good fees and they're licensed by the MAS, held to a very high standard, it will be extremely difficult to try to negate or reduce some of this. So where it deals with a professional license manager, where uh, in the trust deed or the settlement deed is clearly spelled out that a the, the investment advice and the investment management is given to say an uh, uh, investment committee or a license manager. I think that's different because that's contractual and that's clearly spelled out in the trust deed. We will approach it that way. Right, okay. Victor, did you have any thoughts on this? Yes, I think it's useful to first understand the common law position before looking at the specific statutory provisions, right? So under the common law position, whether it's you know, Armitage and Nurse or Spread Trustees and Sarah Ann Hutchison, it is possible to actually um, reduce um, or, and, and actually reduce the scope of the trustees' liability even for gross negligence, right? So that's the common law position. And if we look at the Trustees Act, Section 3A, subsection 2, specifically says in relation to statutory duty of care, that may be excluded. But there's no such express provision uh, in relation to, for example, standard investment criteria and uh, uh, the other uh, duties in the Act. So I think it's, it's, quite, a, uh, it's quite a gray area to Ooh. say that um, it, it can be excluded. I think for standard investments you know, found in uh, Section 5, I guess there's an argument, right, that um, you know, if you look at the wording of sec subsection 5.1, it says in exercising any power of investments, mm. it's arguable that you know, if the trustee doesn't have that power in a reserve trust, which we'll talk about, uh, a reserve powers trust we'll talk about later, mm. possibly uh, they may not have this duty. But I think in, in, as for the other powers, um, it is questionable whether or not they can be contracted out of. And right. in any event, um, case law makes it very clear that your core duties of uh, carrying out the trust honestly and in good faith, you can't uh, uh, exclude liability for those. Right, right. Okay. Linda Tran, did you have any views on yeah. the ability to contract yeah. out of this or, or otherwise, particularly with regards yeah. to policy statements and reviewing policy statements and external asset managers yeah. from time to time. Yeah. So I, I, I think first, firstly, um, I think people have said that there are no express exclusion provisions in respect to, of, of any of these things um, in, in our trustee legislation. Secondly, I, I agree with Vigna that, that in respect of the standard investment criteria, it deals with the case where the trustee is exercising his power of investment. So if it's not with him, it may not apply. But uh, our, our case one assumes that the trustee is so exercising. Um, 
the one point I would make is with respect to the you know the policy statements and so on, all these provisions found in Part 4A of the Trustees Act. And the question is whether these are, although not directly stated as such, these are in fact um, default powers. Right. So our provisions are very closely modelled on the the Trustee Investment Act 2000 in England, and yeah. safe to say it was borrowed from that. So the question is really whether those some of these provisions were intended to add what was not in the law as a default, but people did it in the trust instrument. So there is there is an argument, and I think it's a good argument, that that part 4A is, is a default power. And if, if, you know, if I had to be asked, I would say on balance, I think that's the right answer. And you can look at some of the English books, you know, Kessler's, QC's book, and so on, what views they take. So, so there is an argument that part 4A is, is um, a default power. I do see in trustees that, that people say, you know, the provisions of Part 4 A are excluded to the maximum extent permitted by law. But I think it works. The, the standard investment criteria, I'm less certain. It, it may well apply. You know, there, there are some things that, that you can probably shape by your trust instruments. So, you, you know, one of the standard investment criteria is to, to have diversity diversification to the extent suitable for the circumstances of the trust and I might put in some declaratory language to that and similarly for proper advice I might say you know the the, the trust uh, the trustee does not have to and is not intended and that that may help the trustee make a determination on reasonableness um, so I'm not sure that standard investment criteria can be excluded but on balance you know um, arguably the part 4a can but that's an, it's a nice question Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and Tony, just in respect of, of, of your adherence to these Trustee Act requirements, uh, what, what's your view on, on all of these? Are these things that mm. we can effectively contract out of, or is it something that you are mandatorily uh, required to follow? I think, I think we take the view that uh, either you're going to be a trustee uh, and you're going to do the things that you're supposed to you know, be doing um, or not, and I really think it's good practice. Uh, to have all of these, uh, you know, things in 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 play, um, within within our context, uh, it's exactly what we do. We do take proper advice. We do have policy statements if it's something that we adhere to. Yeah, I mean, certainly my reading of the the section it does tether the requirements, particularly on the policy statement and the reviewing requirements, to the statutory duty of care, and the statutory duty of care. We we know we can exclude that, so it does seem to suggest that we can actually free draft around this as long as we are taking care that the duty of care itself is being ameliorated at the same time. So I think it's probably on balance exactly what, what, the, um, what we've all been saying. It's pretty much up to us as we, how much we can try and delegate out of this through, um, through free drafting. Here's one question that comes up though in practice, aside from all of the, the, the requirements to, to, um, to diversify, et cetera, within standard investment and advice. At the core, um, obviously we have a, a propensity to use trustee exclusion clauses uh, within the industry. And, and a critical question that's being asked at the moment is this, how far can we exclude or how effective are our exclusion clauses uh, within the Singapore context? So the fight here is between can we exclude all forms of negligence up until the point of willful default? And I think from, from the perspective of the uh, sort of viewing audience, what we're saying here is can we objectively uh, exclude liability up to the point that we intentionally do something wrong against the fund or we intentionally are reckless. And that's the, that's the dividing line. Gross negligence is, uh, let's say, heavy amount of um, reckless behavior. 
willful default is really I'm, I'm taking a deliberate action and I know subjectively that this is going to damage the fund. Now, the question being asked primarily is this, can we exclude within a Singapore law perspective, can we exclude all forms of negligence, whether gross or otherwise? And that leaves us just to have um, uh, willful default as the default standard, as it were. Or are we limited in Singapore uh, to not exclude gross negligence, whatever that means? So here's the, here's the, the, the question to all the panelists. Um, can we exclude gross negligence or all forms of negligence within the Singapore law context? So I think, uh, Wunham, if you would kick us off again. Sure. So um, if you draw from the experience and how our interaction with the regulators um, and the feedback we get and feel we get from them, right? So the short answer is this. Um, we go by this standard. You can have um, a exclusion or limitation of liability for trustees in the trustee. You are allowed to do that. The common law recognizes that and, and allows the enforcement of this. Mm -hmm. So in short, what it does is that it says that the trustee, so long as it acts in good faith, uh, in accordance with the trustee, then it can be excluded uh, from liability right. for its acts or omission except for four situations, and we call them the carve-outs. Typically, the carve-outs would be willful default, breach of trust, negligence, whether it's negligence or gross negligence, and fraud. So for these four, in layman's term, we call them self-insured. So if your trustee are silly enough to act or have omitted to act in one of these four carve-out situations, the limitation and exclusion of liability does not protect the, the trustee. So then the only question, uh, uh, that sometimes is of contention is whether we could uh, have to carve out at gross negligence, which is high level, or mm. just negligence. So that's a bit academic, but uh, in the practical sense, there is a fight right between the, the trustees and the other party. And then for willful default, I, I think it's a given. Uh, it's a carve out. We, we cannot exclude. Right, right. Vigna, what's your, your view on this? What's the standard in Singapore? Can we exclude gross negligence? Okay. Before we uh, talk about uh, whether you can exclude gross negligence, I think it's quite useful to understand uh, what gross negligence actually means, right? So common law has said that gross negligence is uh, it's, uh, it's something which is more serious or more flagrant degree of negligence than, than just uh, 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 pure negligence, right? So it's something which is more serious. So I think once we understand that, uh, we can then deal with the question. Further, um, in a case of spread trustees uh, they, versus Sarah and Hutchison, they actually said that gross negligence does not import any question of intention or, or, or even recklessness. Right? So I think it's uh, whether recklessness falls within the ambit of gross negligence uh, is questionable. Right? I think there's some common law authority to say that it may not be. Okay? So leaving the definition aside, it's, in my view, it's quite clear that negligence, whether it's gross or otherwise, sits on one end, which can be excluded, and bad faith, willful misconduct sits on the other end, uh, which can't. So in my view, yes, you can exclude uh, gross negligence. Right, right. And then finally, in your view, do you, do you agree with that analysis? Uh, yeah. Um... 
I, I, I think common law, clearly you can. I think, um, you know, negligence, whether gross or not, you know, um, can be excluded. I, I think it's helpful if you're actually going to try and, you know, um, exclude, you know, certain things. is particularly useful to define gross negligence because there can be can be debate about what exactly it means. So, you know, it's useful to have a, um, a definition clause. Now, I think Wunham talked about, you know, um, Perhaps, perhaps I think more in the public space than sort of private, where you know you you exclude you know um, breach of trust, you exclude negligence, you exclude fraud, you know, and and I think from from my perspective, one one of the points to note about that is if you sort of carve out breach of trust from from your you know your exclusion clause, then you carved out arguably almost everything from from you know from the you know, from the the trust deed because breach of trust can cover a, a potentially a fairly wide range of situations. So, you know, in in the private context, I would I would probably encourage caution, you know, um, before using such language. Mm -hmm. And Tony, from your side, um, what do you habitually do? Do you exclude all forms of negligence, and then just uh, stay behind that willful default or fraud? Or do you import a, a form of negligence limitation on your exclusion clauses? No, no, I mean, our, our exclusion clauses in terms of protection um, basically does exclude things. It doesn't exclude uh, willful default, obviously, um, or fraud, or any of those. Uh, it also doesn't include, uh, exclude gross negligence. I mean, our view is that we are professional trustees. We get paid for what we do. Um, if we had tried to do that in terms of our client base, I'm not too sure that that would necessarily be a commercially sound thing. And I'm not too sure it would actually uh, stand up. So our trustees actually, you know, uh, do not. Um, but at the same time, what we do do is we actually define um, or give gross negligence a definition just to create some sort of um, uh, substance or starting point uh, should that ever be an issue. Right, right. But I think from a Singapore standpoint, <clears throat> Singapore will will follow the UK side of this. And in the UK, we have this Armitage and Nurse decision, which um, there we had a, a very prominent judge grapple with this issue. And the end result was, as a matter of UK law, common law effectively, you can exclude all forms of negligence, but obviously you can't uh, exclude um, uh, uh, activity that's willful. So that's, if we say that that's the starting point, then we look at uh, as Common Law Garden Singapore trustee, it can do it. And the likelihood is that uh, Singapore court would follow the, the UK common law position on this. Not every jurisdiction has been the same on this, though. There's Canadian authority, there's Scottish authority that they won't allow gross negligence to be excluded. Now, the question that I think is useful for the, for the attendees is this. If you have a Singapore trust and you have an, a, a clause within it that effectively excludes liability up until gross negligence. The question is this, from a Singapore standpoint, what is gross negligence? And I think there, there may be uh, some instability in the case law. And I think, Victor, you, you kindly sort of elucidated some of that. One way of looking at it would be that gross negligence in the context of a licensed trust company is nothing more than professional negligence. So it would be effectively an objective standard and not importing all of these sort of um, emotive terms such as recklessness or, or willful behavior. Oh, yeah, I say that because it's quite an important consideration because I think many of the Singapore trusts may carry this gross negligence limitation as it does with, with Tony at Rome. 
and people will be asking the question, what does growth actually mean in this context? I just, Fickler, on your side, having said that, looking at it from a context of a paid trustee, would you, would you say that there is, there is a scope for a Singapore court to equate gross negligence to effectively professional negligence and look at the objective standard of what would a professional trustee do in that situation with regards to investments, rather than looking at the, the reckless behavior or looking at the intention aspects? I think it's actually a point which is, uh, it, it comes down to the contractual uh, intention for this, right? Because from a policy perspective, there's no indication that the Singapore courts would strike down a contractual agreement to limit a trustee from gross negligence, right? So there's we've no indication of that. So it then comes down to um, uh, contractual uh, interpretation. But this is something to think about, right? If you define gross negligence in your in, in, in your in your trustee, but if that deviates from the common law definition of what gross negligence is, and it's drafted so widely to perhaps um, swing to the other side of potentially um, uh, along the lines of, of, of willful misconduct, um, I think that there is scope for the court to go behind the uh, the the contractual definition of uh, gross negligence to see whether or not uh, it actually uh, strays into an area which can't be excluded. Right, right. Okay, so I think for, for, for the attendees that are professional trustees, the question is, where are you at in terms of your exclusions? And if you have this gross negligence term in there, there is some level of instability on the scope of that potentially. So it, it just, this informs you that this is an area in, in common law that is not um, solid in stone in terms of the interpretation. I think one final point on this is uh, with regards, we have this, this phenomena of um, having a, a duty to inform. And I think STEP have done this in the UK where you include an exclusion clause. And I think the New Zealand, the new New Zealand um, Trust Act takes this much further, that where you have an exclusion clause within the deed, that you ought to bring this to the attention of the SEC law and support the trust. And the question I'd ask the panelists is, from a Singapore standpoint, do we actually need to tell the SEC law we are excluding up all negligence or we're excluding up until gross negligence? Or what is the position here if we don't do that? Should we be saying to SEC laws, um, this particular clause you need to be very careful of and we need you to be um, proof that you're cognizant of uh, the, um, the, the, the sort of limitations on our liability. So I'd like to put this up to Lin Chuan, if you could kick off on this one, uh, on uh, the duty to inform the set law. Is that, does that exist under Singapore law? I, I, I don't think there's a hard duty, but you know, as a matter of sound practice, um, and as part of explaining the trust deed, um, I think this is certainly one of the clauses that you know, would be very high up on the list of things to, to um, draw the, the party's attention to. Right. And do, does everyone else agree with that, that analysis that as a matter of Singapore law, we don't have a duty to do this, but it's good practice. It's, it's um, good to do it. I would agree with Lentron's position. Um, I think in, in, in practice, uh, some trustees may not actually be highlighting that clause. Yeah. And if there's ever a dispute that goes to, to the courts and um, there's an issue of you know sort of reasonableness and relying on exclusion clause. 
from an evidentiary perspective, it can be proven that right at the onset it was highlighted. Uh, I think that would be very useful. Right, right. Will have any, any comments on this? Um, I don't believe that there is a Singapore legal position on this or that there's a duty to inform the SES law. When we act for the trustees, the professional trustees, we do advise them to highlight this uh, out of good practice. If we act for the family, we will zero in on this, like Lian Chuan said, it's actually quite high on the list. Right. So uh, limitation of liability, exclusion, uh, duties of express duties and implied duties of the trustees. These are actually you know, like the top three, top five. Right, right. And, and totally on your side, what's the, what's the standard practice uh, at Roan when it comes to these exclusion clauses? I mean, we don't, we don't formally highlight them. We don't make a settler sign off on, uh, you know, on having been made aware uh, of that. I am conscious of the fact that some trust companies uh, do that. We do have a uh, summary of the clauses. Um, it's a two, three page, you know, little summary that just highlights it. Um, but from a client acceptance perspective, we always have to satisfy ourselves that the clients have actually been adequately advised before we actually take over as a trustee. Um, and so therefore, from that perspective, there'll always be a uh, legal advisor on the side of the client who, or the settler who's actually uh, uh, should be, you know, highlighting that. Right. But I do agree. I do agree that it is something that would be good practice. Yeah. Okay. So I think the key takeaway is for mm. these um, the sign-off provisions, if you're a professional trustee and you, you haven't been doing this habitually, then it ought not to prejudice your clause. In other jurisdictions, it will have prejudiced your clause. Um, but, but in Singapore, that's not the case as the law currently stands. I mean, that's the consensus. The general standard diagram that I'll use sets out the basic parties to a trust document. So you'll see the trust, you'll see the trustee, beneficiaries and protector, and then sometimes we'll describe them as acceptable. Underlying company, and then we have the investments and the economic loss that's occurring to them. Now, COVID-19, as we know, is having an impact across the markets, and we don't know whether or not COVID-19 is just starting off. So this could be sort of end of the beginning scenario. There is all talk of uh, a second wave coming, and there's also discussions of us going in Singapore down into a further lockdown, et cetera, as we go forward. So it's uncertain times, and we've known this for, for months now. The impact from the fiduciary industry's standpoint is the potential losses that would be occurring to the trust fund. So it's a bit like 2008 all over again, but this is much more serious because it has a health element to it now, whereas in 2008, it was just pure economic losses. So it's volatile times. The fiduciary liability exposure is the, the premise of all of this talk today. So we're looking at what would happen after the event, let's say post-COVID, if we come out of this with a, a damaged trust fund, and then there is, uh, in some cases, an inevitable sort of review and forensic picking over what preceded this, to maybe perhaps uh, apportion some liability blame. And that's the premise of this talk today. Okay. We'll look at the scenario now where we introduce the, uh, the set law into the mix, because obviously um, the preponderance of uh, Singapore trusts will be reserved powers. And so we will have another um, fiduciary or otherwise sitting alongside the trustee. So we'll have a power holder that's not a trustee sitting alongside on the trust. And in this case, we'll, we'll assume that this is the, the set law. So here's the, the headline questions that are, will be likely being asked is this, as a set law with reserved investment powers, what are my obligations? What should I be doing? If we are going through COVID-19 and there are 
wide sort of fluctuations in investment returns, what should, it, what should I be doing to manage the situation given that I have the investment powers? The second aspect is what is my liability for investment losses if for some reason uh, I maladminister the exercise of these powers and cause even worse loss to the trust fund than was, um, was otherwise going to be the case. So these are topical issues because um, we have a majority of trusts, I suspect, in Singapore where we do have um, reserve powers that are either vested with settlers or have moved on and are with protectors or protector committees. So the question is, is quite relevant. So looking at the relationship between the beneficiaries and a power holder, in this case, a reserve, uh, set of reserve power. Uh, the position under the Singapore Trustee Act, as we all know, is uh, section 95, which is declaratory, that basically sets out that having a reserved investment power does not effectively invalidate the trust. So you can't, you can't effectively claim that a Singapore trust is a sham by basis of the uh, settler has reserved an investment power or administrative powers. The critical question for us though is what is the nature of the power that's been retained by the settlor? This is critical because it then informs what obligations the settlor should be discharging and then on the back end of that what liability exposure the settlor could be potentially being suffered. So the, the Singapore Trustee Act doesn't set out the quality of a reserve power. It says that the, you can't invalidate a Singapore Trust just by virtue of having a reserve power but it doesn't go on to then spell out what the nature of that power is. So the, the question I'm asking the, the, the sort of panelists here is, in the mix of circumstances where a settlor is, let's say, not a beneficiary or is a beneficiary, or th there is a, a, a settlor and then there's a protector committee that follows, or the settlor is just the first protector, what are, in the mix of all of the different types of ways in which a settlor can be introduced as a power holder into a trust, what is the view on whether or not the settler holds that power as a fiduciary, effectively as if he were a trustee, or holds it in a personal capacity so that he can basically ignore the power, not do anything about investment losses, and not be held liable for that? So those are the extremes here. And it's a very, very important question to answer because the, a lot of the settlers out there Will be completely clueless as to what they should actually be doing in these circumstances. So I'd, I'd ask um, Victor to, to open us up on this one. When it comes to reserve powers, res settler reserve powers, does the settler stand in a fiduciary standpoint or does he hold this power as a personal power and how do we figure this out? Yeah, Zach, this is a, I think this is a really good question because I don't think much thought has been um, uh, levied in this area. Yeah? And if you look at uh, case law, and there's a very prominent case, right, of Lord uh, Veste's uh, uh, executors. There, um, it was a case involving um, the Sacklaw's powers to direct investments. And Lord Simmons actually said that would be considered a fiduciary power, right? So I think that uh, reserved uh, Sacklaw's power would, uh, of investments would be considered a fiduciary power. Then. The question is, would it be possible uh, to change that into a personal power? And I think that arguably uh, it could be, mm. if express uh, words are used, yeah. arguably. I mean, do, do you see, in, in terms of, I and mean, I'm open to start to all of us at this point, um, do you see a difference between a set law who's also a beneficiary uh, or holds a power of revocation as against a set law who's excluded 
from the, from the benefiting under the trust and is succeeded by a protector committee. So you actually have a, a semi-office holder rather than an individualized named individual. Do you, do you see a difference in the potential interpretation of what's the quality of that power um, from a Singapore, um, Singapore court standpoint? I just ask Victor, just on the back of your answer on that. Yeah, happy to. Now, I think um, the nature of the power should not change uh, regardless of whether it's a sack law exercising the power or it's a protector committee. And in my view, it does not change uh, whether the you know, sack law is the main primary beneficiary or it's a mix of beneficiaries, right? I think the default position is that one is a fiduciary power and that power has to be exercised in, in the best interest of all beneficiaries. I think if, if the sack law is perhaps the, the sole beneficiary during his lifetime, um, then you know, in terms of proving a breach, that would be very difficult. Mm. But I don't think the nature of the power um, would, would change. Okay. What, what's your view on this whole issue of fiduciary or personal when it comes to a settled reserve power trust? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I agree with Vigna. I think as a default rule, you know, um, investment powers, you know, uh, are by nature likely to be regarded as you know, fiduciary, right? And as opposed to, for example, a power to add or remove a beneficiary, which the settler may reserve to serve his own ends, you know? Um, so so I, I start from that same, same viewpoint, you know, one of the questions I think when you decide whether to deal with it by putting in a clause to make it personal, for example, you can do that or you can say, you know, that the, the settler is not liable so long as he, you know, he has acted in, in a good faith, right? So you, you set a low, a low standard of care and because this, in this case, it's not the, a professional trustee. The settler may have his own, you know, investment ideas. So, so, you know, you could make it personal. You can say you can invest, you know, you can invest as you like. We purport to impose no standard. Um, it, it, there may still be some room if you did something, you know, um, not an investment at all that is outside the power. It's a fraud on the power, but you could do that. Or you could simply say that his duty is simply that of, of good faith. So, you know, no, no negligence or gross negligence standard would apply to this as well. So those are some options available. What, what, what say you on this point? Um, I agree with much of what Yen Chuan and Vigna said, but uh, just to clarify or, or supplement, I think the investment powers in and of itself doesn't make uh, the person making the in investment decision a fiduciary. So for example, if there is a licensed fund manager and you appoint them to take care of the investment, I think that in itself doesn't automatically make the fund manager especially a licensed fund manager, if I do three. Oh, so sure. in this case, if it's a set law, whether the set law has the reserve powers or is succeeded by a protected committee, I agree with Vigna that that nature doesn't change. The, the, the change of the label or the, the pers persona doesn't change the nature of the power. But practically, I think there is a difference. So if it's a set law and he's the sole beneficiary, uh, I think in the earlier discussion, we, we, we said, you're not going to sue yourself. It's, it's, oh, oh. it's schizophrenic, right? So in most of the cases where we've handled in recent years where the SAS law has reserved power, yeah. the SAS law typically would be the pay truck or the may truck and one of the beneficiaries. 
So again, so long as the patriarch and matriarch is alive, practically, I, I think the spouses and the children are not going to uh, come out with a rebellion and, and start suing the matriarch and patriarch. So mm. I, I think it's a theoretical issue while the temple is still in power. Mm-hmm. And then, Tony, from your perspective, from the trustee's perspective, um, the view that you take on settler reserve powers is, are they automatically fiduciary or do you, stand, do you, do you come from a different standpoint on this? I mean, generally speaking, a settler is hardly ever just the only beneficiary. There'll always be other other people. And, and as a reserving investment powers, there's always a, an element of self-interest there. So we actually um, make those powers uh, personal uh, in the uh, in the trustees. I mean, I think I think our view is that if they were fiduciary, um, that might actually even increase the trustees' responsibility to monitor another fiduciary within within the structure okay so if if that being the case um the the supplemental questions on this um would be this uh, the liability exposure for a set law who we say is a fiduciary um they would import all of the duty of care all of the the issues that we've seen insofar as a fiduciary office holder is concerned um ordinarily we don't see liability clauses being used to protect um, settlor reserve or settlers that have reserve powers. It, I, I've not seen it as a systemized approach, that level of sophistication um, being brought to bear on the settlor's role in the trust. If it is the case that we have a fiduciary office by virtue of the settlor, then it must be even with more force that a paid professional protector would be definitely a, a fiduciary particularly if the office were to be effectively perpetual insofar as the trust um, period was concerned. So the question I would, I would ask is, if that being the case, if we have got, and, and for the benefit of the attendees who are professional trustees, if we have got a stock of trusts where the set law is a reserve power holder, and we take the view that in, in these circumstances, they may well be in a fiduciary office, Question is, are they, where are they getting any advice? What, what, is, what is being done to, to help them to understand what they need to do during this environment? And crucially, is it possible now for us to introduce an exclusion clause into the trust on their liability? I mean, that, that's a, that will undoubtedly come up as a question. Can we vary the trust to introduce a exclusion of liability? if after the event we take the view that they actually are in a fiduciary position. So I'd, I'd ask Vitna to kick off on this one. Zach. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very difficult because if, uh, when, when, you, when you want to exercise power variation, you know, it really comes down to whether or not the variation is considered administrative or dispositive in nature. Uh, changing a, a, a liability clause, you know, I have to say, I would, I would like to research that particular point further before uh, taking a position. You know, I think that if you ask me to take a view now, uh, I would say that arguably it, it, it may not be in line with the set law's intentions at the, you know, at, at the onset of trust. If there was going to be a limitation of liability, it should have been done then. So that's my preliminary view without further research. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tricky one. Unham, what, what do you say on that? So that you know, we determine that the, the, the settler actually has a role to play and it's a quite an important role to play with respect to the trust investments uh, and could potentially have some liabilities as well. 
And then there's a, there's a question on, should we just vary the trust? Should we just give him protections that we enjoy as a trustee? Um, on the assumption that there are other beneficiaries and the death law is not the sole beneficiary. Yeah. I would take the conservative approach. I agree with Bigner. Subject to further research, I would be reluctant to put in a written opinion that you can bury it because it is uh, potentially detrimental to the beneficiaries. So the practical solution would be, if this is a revocable trust, you may have to consider revoking it and setting up a new trust with the proper language from day one. And Tran, what, what, what say you on this point? Lin Chuan, can you hear us? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think there's certainly a concern with, you know, all variation powers that they have to be exercised in the interest of the beneficiaries, right? Um, and for proper purpose and so on. So, uh, you know, if you if you added a, you know, an, a limitation of liability, you have to explain, you have to explain why, you know. Um, but perhaps, if I could go back to what I said a little earlier about you know whether it is a question of defining the the standard of you know the standard of care you know so if you sort of said you know um, I shall act in good faith and it, it it could be argued that you know the trustee decides that that's that's actually you know um, helpful to the you know to the the set law you know in in not making him over conservative because you know one of the the issues with investments, you can take too much risk, but you can also take too little risk. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it may be he says, you know, if we set the, the, the liability correctly, then, you know, um, the correct balance of risk uh, induces the behaviors that we want, mm -hmm. right? And, and that, that's the justification for, for limitation clauses in, in general. So, so you would have to be careful, um, but, but one way of thinking about it might be what I suggested. Okay. I think the other question that will come up then is given that the, if we, if we analyze the set law as having a position of um, standing in a fiduciary position, is the relationship between the set law and the trustees? And so a question here would be um, trustee supervision of set law reserve powers. Uh, is a trustee exonerated when complying with a set law investment direction? and looking at some of what Hong Kong has done with respect to this. So the, the first question I would, I would ask us is, the interrelation between the trustee and the set law, should the trustee be actually looking over its shoulder and making sure that the set law is exercising his investment powers in a proper fashion? Or is it the case that the trustee um, can take an investment direction and just leave it at that? And I, I just supplement that with this. This is, uh, a copy of the uh, the provisions in the Hong Kong amended trustee act and I've underlined the aspect where Hong Kong has said um, if a power function referred to in one has been reserved by the settler a trustee who acts in accordance with the exercise of the power or function is not in breach of trust right so that's effectively the Hong Kong position the question for us here in Singapore is we don't have that provision we don't have an express provision in the same way under our trustee act so the question is, does, is it that the trustee should be supervising the settlers exercise of their powers? Or is it that the trustee should be standoff and say, well, you're just a fiduciary, the, the beneficiaries can sue you directly if you get this wrong, and I'm not involved. What, what's the position that we take on this? Should the trustee supervise or not? And I think Lin Chuan, if I could ask you to, to, to lead us off on this. 
um, I think it, it, it depends. It, it's ultimately a question of construction, right, of the, you know, the trust deed and how the respective roles are divided between, you know, um, the investment advisor and, and the, the general trustee, right? Because this, this is a division of the, the administration of a trust. So, so where the line is drawn depends on the instrument, you know. If you drafted your trust deed properly, you, you would make some express provision in it. Hong Kong has done it by statute, but if you, know, if you haven't, then this is actually just something you would have to deal with. Assuming, for argument's sake, that you haven't, you know, then um, it's still a question of construction, but, you know, it, it, it then perhaps becomes arguable that the trustee has the general duty of oversight. And, you know, he might have to, but much will turn on the, 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 the wording. So, you know, um, difficult to draw, uh, you know, abstract conclusion. Mm -hmm. Victor, what, what do you think about this? I think uh, we have to look at two different cases, right? The first is in relation to uh, reserved investment, settler investment powers trust, right? I think in, in that situation, the likelihood that the courts would say that is a, 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 a high-level supervisory power would be less. Yeah? But if it's not a reserved powers trust, the, the trustees have uh, power investments, but, you know, it, it, it may appoint an investment advisor. Uh, I think that's when it, it becomes a bit more gray. Uh, but looking at how the Court of Final Appeal and Chong Hong Lee uh, and DBS ruled that, uh, you know, there was no high-level supervisory uh, duty based on the facts, um, I, I, I think that judgment was quite sound. Um, what would also be relevant is on the facts, did the trustee uh, actually exercise any sort of supervisory uh, function? And, and, and if they did, then we may have uh, an issue. But the difficulty is generally the, the way in which trusts are drafted when we have uh, settled reserves is we don't try to import some of that language that we would expect when we have underlying companies. So it's what do we do in the absence of that sort of express provision not to be responsible for the actions of uh, a fellow fiduciary. If we don't have it there, uh, my, my sort of general common law view would be that the, the trustee, the primary obligation is to look out for the beneficiaries. And if they have a sister um, uh, fiduciary who's uh, misappropriating the funds or otherwise misallocating the funds, then they, they're gonna be under some level of, of um, obligation, unless of course they are relieved of it either expressly or by statute. And, the problem we have in Singapore is we don't have that. So it's left to us to free draft this problem. In many cases, the trustees won't, won't contain, contain those sorts of provisions. So in the absence of express provisions, and I agree with you, Victor, if there are express provisions, then that, that does start to you know, draw the parameter. But in the absence of express provisions as to the interrelation between a trustee and the reserve power holder, what, what should be the default position as a matter of good practice for the uh, for the trustees, and I'd ask Munham, what is a good good practical step here? Because trustees will actually have this problem right now. Okay, I'll try to answer that, but I'll break it up uh, <laughs> because in my mind there are a few components or a few parts to this. So uh, number one, if we were acting for the professional trustee and it is a reserve uh, power trust, then we would actually. Uh, attention to this and draft it into the trust deed to make it clear right, right? and have the usual limitation exclusion like 
rely on the case law to protect the trustee. Mm. Uh, second, if it's the set law, uh, the set law has reserved powers of investment, and the set law is a sole beneficiary. I think it's actually a bit more straightforward. So the Zhang Hongli case was a case where the set law uh, was one of the four beneficiaries, the spouse and the two children. He was basically calling the shots. So I, I think the courts perhaps were less sympathetic towards him, right? Now, if in, in those situations where the set law is calling the shots, he's the sole beneficiary or, or he's the main uh, key beneficiary and the rest were just like his spouse and children, then uh, I think again, you could cut him some slack and give him some leeway. But again, if because there are other beneficiaries, if his investment decisions are clearly out of whack, right? Mm. The, I agree that the trustee does not have a high level supervisory power and you do not need to monitor him. It's not your job. You're not trained to do so. Mm. But if he's doing something clearly wrong and it affects uh, in a detrimental manner to the other beneficiaries, I think the trustee do have to step in and do something. Mm, mm. So I, I like to draw an analogy always, uh, not the a correct and entirely correct analogy, but I like to draw an analogy between the trustee and an independent director on a listed board. So you leave the day-to-day -day execution and the professional work to the trained and hired professionals, the executive directors and the CEO and the C-suites. But the ID is there to do a few things, including safeguarding the interests of the minority shareholders or looking after their interests. So in the same way, if the trustee smells something, feels that something is wrong, you should step in and do something about it. Mm. Do you agree with that, Lin Chuan? Yeah, very much, yes. Yeah, yeah. Tony, from your perspective, um, do you monitor the exercise of these powers? Do you, do you yes, the, oh, yeah. Yeah, in the absence of any sort of controlled company uh, provisions, uh, we do we do monitor. Right, and is it because you feel that there is some residual liability exposure if you don't? Yes, yes, we do because I mean I think uh, Singapore kind of provides for the fact that the trust is not invalidated, but it doesn't actually say anything else with regards to in the same way that uh, that Hong Kong does. Right. So it doesn't actually cover any point on the oversight, uh, you know, in in that respect. So we do. Okay. Okay. Even even at even at a point sometimes when there is a controlled company sort of provisions, we still generally do because we find that that actually interacts quite well with the uh, with the settler. Right. Okay. Now, case study two will then take us on to look at trust structures that have underlying companies and have included what's called the Bartlett clause. And we'll look at the Zhong Hong Li case. That is the uh, the case in Hong Kong that was decided late last year. And we'll look at the compatibility of a Bartlett provision with respect to modern AML provisions as they apply to trust company service providers. Looking at case study two, and the other, the other case studies that follow this are a little bit more, um, are, are quicker, they're, they're not as involved. This is quite draggy because it's a big area for everyone to deal with. So case study two, the basic fact pattern is the same, we have investments. However, the difference with this one is we interpose a company. So this is the traditional company, on, uh, a trust company and account scenario. And the question being asked here is the relationship between the trustee and the underlying company and its liability exposures if that company invests um, uh, in, in, in an unwise way and ends up with losses to the fund. And this is a typical structural um, scenario. We do have what's called a Bartlett clause, which goes back uh, many, many decades. 
that tries to separate the trustee's obligation to monitor and then get involved with the underlying company. And we have the Zhong uh, Hong decision, which is the DBS case in Hong Kong, um, which decided uh, the, the sort of, um, well, the, the main issue here is a long protracted, went through a number of appeals. And the question for us all is, what is the current position with respect to a Bartlett clause under a trust deed? So I'll just explain, Bartlett clause, as I mentioned earlier, is just a provision that allows the trustees to take a standoff approach and not interfere in the underlying companies. It's a bit like a, um, a sort of expressly drafted VISTA provision where you, you, the trustee is not um, permitted to get involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the company. They, they don't need to unless they're under express notice of uh, misconduct, uh, fraudulent misconduct at the, at the company level. But otherwise, they are not under an obligation to, um, to supervise the company. And that was the, the, the whole contention in the, in the uh, Hong Kong case. So what I'd asked uh, Vigna, what's the current position following that case with respect to the validity of Bartlett clauses for the benefits of the attendees that have not been following this? Sure. So uh, just to give, uh, to add on to your overview, right? Uh, it all started with uh, the decision in, in Bartley and Barclays, where it's held that uh, where trust holds, you know, controlling block of shares in a company, the trustee has a consequent duty to uh, take action where the affairs of the company are not being conducted appropriately and use its power to obtain information and, uh, and, and make a decision whether to intervene. So as a, as a result of that case, then we had the anti-Bartlett clauses come into play, such as what was drafted in uh, the Chang Hong Lee case. And I think based on the decision in Chang, uh, where the anti-Bartlett clause was upheld, I don't see a reason why it wouldn't be upheld in Singapore. Mm -hmm. okay. Going on from that, the one question that would, would come to mind is this. In the current circumstances where we have these economic fluctuations, can a trustee rely on a Bartlett provision where they supervise and intervene in the activities of the underlying company notwithstanding the Bartlett provision saying that they don't have to, but they're, they're not obliged to. What is the position? Because when I read that decision, the Hong Kong decision, um, they, didn't, they found actually that the, the trustee wasn't exercising any supervisory role as a matter of fact. So they didn't have to decide that particular point of, I have a Bartlett provision on one hand, but I still intervene anyway, because let's say there's family politics that forces me as a trustee to take a direct hand in what's going on. What is the position if we have a Singapore trustee that finds itself in a position where it has a Bartlett provision, but it actually ends up crossing the line and starts actively supervising the activities of the underlying company? Does that Singapore trustee then take on uh, obligations or can it effectively sit behind the Bartlett wall if things go wrong? What's, what's the consensus here? Um, and I'd ask uh, Wunham, what, what do you make of that? Um, okay, so in such a situation, if we were advising the professional trustee and there is a SPV interposed between the trust and the underlying assets and the family enterprises, this is the clear wishes of the set law. The trust deed should have been properly drafted with the uh, protection provision that says that the trustee uh, does not need to supervise and does not intervene with the, uh, the affairs of the SPV and what's beneath especially if the SPV are staffed by uh, directors who are not from the trustee or the affiliates of the trustee. So that's point number one. 
So point number two is, if that's the case, uh, my position would be similar to when we talk about the reserve powers for the SAS law. You leave the SPV signatories and the directors to do what they have to do. But uh, I, I like what Tony says. They, they still monitor. So the, we will advise the trustees to still monitor and cast an eye and ask the right question from time to time. And then if you smell something, you feel something is wrong, please ask more questions. Please ask for more reports. If you feel that there's something going on like dishonesty or fraud, you do have to put a stop to it. You may have to make a, a report to the authorities and you do have to put a stop to it to protect the beneficiaries. That, that would be my short advice. Right, so again, I'll just restate. So in a case where a trustee does get involved in that way, they could be, by virtue of taking overt actions on the company, they could effectively be waiving the Bartlett protection at that point. Do, do we agree with that? Victor, I think if you could, could jump in. You know, if, if, if we read um, the decision of both the Court of Appeal and the final Court of Appeal and uh, Chung Hong Lee, a lot of uh, attention was placed on the fact that um, post-execution of, of, of the trades, the trustee would still uh, review them and, 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 and acknowledge them, right? By actually, you know, just uh, signing off. And initially that was held to be uh, uh, proof that some sort of actual supervisory uh, power was being exercised. Uh, despite there being an anti-barter clause, I think you're spot on, right, Zach, where despite what the clause says, if in practice you are... Um, taking a, a, a more active part in the business than provided for in, in, in any anti that clause, you may then see yourself being exposed mm. uh, to, 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 to certain uh, liabilities which uh, may have otherwise been excluded by the anti that clause. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think in the interest of time, let's move on to one other aspect of this, which is the, the use of Bartlett provisions, basically, um, they're quite dated in terms of their use. And generally, the view is that you can disconnect from an underlying company, except where you become expressly on notice that something's going wrong. The question I would ask is, is this actually compatible with modern AML requirements, both at MAS notice level as well as FATF TCSP guidance? So is it really practical for a trustee, a professional trustee, a licensed trustee, to uh, effectively disconnect from the underlying and not seek to effectively understand what they're doing from time to time. How would that, how would that actually work within a FATF environment where you should be aware of what's going on within the structure? And I'd invite Lin Chuan, what's your view on this? Is it, is it compatible, the Bartlett provision and uh, disconnecting from the underlying company and the modern FATF approach for TCSPs, which is you ought to be aware of what's going on within your structures. So I think we can hear you, Lin Chuan. Yeah, part of the purpose of these notices is to do, you know, um, customer due diligence on you know, beneficiaries mm. and, you know, and ultimately, and I think that, that part's not really relevant to, to this present discussion. It's the, the bit, you know, uh, is to sort of monitor your structure and to understand your structure, to understand your business relationship, you know, with, with, with your, the, your various other stakeholders that might might be triggered by this, right? And and 
the purpose of that understanding is is limited and is limited to you know um you know asking yourself whether or not there are red flags for for money laundering it's not, not it's not focused on uh you know uh, whether it's doing well or poorly as an investment so so there might there might be some you know information that comes through financial statements which might otherwise not um but you know i tend to think it's you know, it 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 is not a very deep interaction in, in my mind. Um, others may have a different view, but you know, um, you know, the question which is more interesting in this space to me is kind of how far do you have to go at all, purely from the AML perspective, mm. in understanding and to test whether there's an AML risk there. That that's that's a diff more difficult question. I think on the whether that means that you have some degree of investment supervision, I think the link is fairly weak in, in my mind. Tony, from a trustee perspective, do you, do you sort of uh, look and see what the companies are actually doing as part of your compliance culture? Or how, how does it work for the balance between being able to rely on a Bartlett and at the same time comply with your AML requirements? Yes, I mean, I think, I think the anti-Bartlett ones, I mean, they, I mean, they're really there to protect the trustees. I don't think it should um, undermine uh, the proper administration of a trust. Uh, and AML requirements falls within within that. So mm. I think if you're aware of what's what's under there, you know what you know what the entity owns, uh, what people are doing. I think it's different to actually getting involved and uh, interfering, uh, right. which then leads to the next stage that yeah. we were talking about earlier in terms of. Uh, uh, undermining the uh, the effectiveness of those uh, of those clauses. Right. I think if you if you if you hit behind the you know I need the protection of the antibody clauses, therefore I'm not going to look underneath. I think you're going to fall short of the MAS notice yeah. and yeah. the FATF guidance. Right. Okay. Then we're down to case study three, which is not so much involved. There we'll look at the private trust company, look at the liability exposure of a private private trust company, and then look carefully at whether or not uh, a director can be made to be liable to beneficiaries of a trust for uh, incorrect or, or sort of maladministration of the PTC's underlying investment funds. This is just a private trust company scenario. So this is quite obviously very, very popular nowadays. Private trust companies, the, the issue around them is they are obviously not of substance. They're not a, a licensed entity. They don't have all of the, uh, the, the sort of resources that you would expect from a, a licensed professional outfit. And that leads on to some issues surrounding the ability to be, uh, to enforce any judgments on a breach of trust against a private trust company. So we say in, in the round, the private trust company is pretty uh, judgment proof. One question though that comes up is this, what can we do against the directors of the private trust company? Can we sue a director of a private trust company for the maladministration of the trust fund? In other words, they, this is the sort of name that they use, it's a dog leg claim. Um, is it possible within Singapore context to sue the director of a Singapore private trust company for the economic losses suffered by the trust because of the effective negligent um, uh, administration of the fund? Um, insofar as UK authority, no, you can't do it um, from a UK perspective. But from a Singapore perspective, can we sue a PTC director for losses to the trust fund? And I'd, I'd ask Fickner to, to kick us off. Sure. Uh, this position, to to my knowledge, hasn't actually been been decided uh, in Singapore. I think, even in the Commonwealth, uh, uh, it's you know there've been 
uh, a few cases that talk about dog leg claims, right? Where essentially uh, the the position in the UK uh, is that you can't sue a director of a trust company for a breach of uh, its duties to the beneficiaries, right? There's a break in the link. But how uh, some uh, uh, clever lawyers trying to get around this is to say that it's not that the directors were breaching his duties to the beneficiaries, he was breaching his duties to the company, right? The PTC itself. But there have been very, you know, scarce uh, cases and, and, and nothing in Singapore. So I think it, it's, a, it's a bit of a stretch um, to, to go there. Yeah. And do, do we all agree, Winham and Lin Chuan, do you agree that to, to, do, to, to successfully get a dog leg claim against the director on a PTC in Singapore is probably not likely to happen? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's not likely to happen. And, you know, some, some statutory provisions are written on the assumption that there may, there may be no such claim. So in the Business Trust Act, for example, um, where statutory was imposed, Right. Yeah, so I agree. There are, there are no cases in Singapore as far as we're aware. But uh, if you read dog leg claim and how it works, right, it's actually a two-step or three-step process. So it's indirect. So otherwise, the default position is separate legal entity. If the trustee causes a loss to the beneficiary because of a breach of trust, you go after the trust company first. Then what happens that is where the technicality of the dog leg claim comes in, where you can have the second step, third step, indirectly to take over the claims or the asset rights of the trustee company to go after the director. So it's, it's quite difficult. Yeah. yeah, okay. I suppose then the remedy, I guess, if, if a, a private trust company board of directors fall out with beneficiaries um, is a, a trustee removal. And, and the interesting thing here, Obviously, you have Section 42.1 Trustee Act here that's pretty much modelled on all of the trustee acts around the world that allow the, the court to exercise its discretion to remove a trustee. But the interesting thing, looking at some of the case law on this, which is quite ancient, is that it doesn't have to be on the basis that the trustee actually committed any level of breach. It's just that there's a fundamental falling out between the trustee and the underlying beneficiaries, which the court would, would, seem, would, would encourage the trustee to effectively retire in those circumstances. I just wonder, within a Singapore context, uh, undoubtedly, the Singapore court would take the same view that if there's a, a, a radical falling out between the beneficiaries and a trustee, albeit a PTC, the PTC um, ought to retire as trustee, or I guess the directors ought to, to shuffle. I mean, does anyone have a view on how Singapore um, uh, courts would interpret the falling out between the parties, which would lead to a trustee um, sort of retiring or being removed? I think Victor, if you could give us a few words on this. Yeah, I think that the, the general common law position is that uh, you know if you you can get a, a removal if, if it's considered detrimental to the trust, right? Mm. Uh, and there has been you know uh, the Medwell case as well, where uh, there's such a degree of hostility between the the, the trustee and a beneficiary, uh, which has resulted in an incurable. Uh, breakdown in communication um, so I think you know that that's probably the position that would be followed here as well mm -hmm. okay and does everyone else agree or have anything else to say on this else agree? okay right. case number four we'll look at 
a, a prevalence of um, foreign trusts that are locally administered in Singapore and whether or not these foreign trusts import greater levels of protection than we are afforded in Singapore within the Singapore trust context and whether or not these are going to be enforceable um, going forward. Now, this is an interesting one because we obviously have the phenomena of foreign law trusts being locally administered in Singapore. I don't know if there's any actual statistics out there, but they do exist and they are here. And the question is, will protections contained in a locally administered foreign law trust be enforceable in Singapore, um, particularly in a context where a Singapore court is exercising its supervisory function over, let's say, the protector or the local trustee, and all of the assets, let's say, are in Singapore, uh, and, and the beneficiaries are in Singapore, and the only thing that's foreign is the proper law of the trust. And I say that because of the Crociani decision in the, in the Privy Council. Now, this is obviously conjecture, okay? So there's no right answer here. But the question being asked is, would a, could a Singapore court look at, looking at the facts of the particular trust and looking at the fact that it's the only, the only foreign element of it is the proper law, seek to apply Singapore law to, um, uh, to the, the, the circumstances of that trust and disregard uh, the terms of the foreign law provisions, particularly at say dealing with um, liability exposure of a protector or a reserve power holder. So I just wanted to get a feel for what we felt the Singapore law, Singapore's um, court's approach would be if we do have a scenario where the foreign law provides much more protections than a Singapore, a domestic Singapore trust would provide. And, um, but every, all of the parties are in Singapore. Would it be possible on, on the basis of Kachiani for the Singapore court to maybe uh, disapply some of those provisions? Uh, I'd ask Lichan, what what's your view on this one? Yeah, I mean, I think I think starting starting point would be sort of you know um, you would have a characterization question as a matter of PIL private international law as to you know what mm -hmm. issues are governed by you know the the local law versus you know um, uh, the foreign foreign law right so some 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 provisions you know. Um, might be, you know, uh, might be outside the, the, the scope of the trust itself. You know, if, for example, if uh, somebody challenged a particular transfer into the trust, then in, in, in that sort of situation, um, you know, the, you know, whatever clause on jurisdiction you had and, and so on, you know, and, and governing law would, would not help you. Uh, then you have a sort of a group of, you know, clauses that, you know, um, you know, you know, are dealing with largely internal claims and beneficiary claims are largely internal claims. Then, in, then in that cases, I think the, the the proper law, you know, would be followed to the extent that Singapore's own general PIL principles would 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 point there. You know, whether jurisdiction, um, if if you if you did require only the foreign court to to have jurisdiction, whether that might be followed, I think that that is less clear because you know um court has court has the discretion to to maintain jurisdiction and an exclusive jurisdiction clause may not bind the beneficiaries to the same extent right that's, that's a nice debate about how far you can do that you know yeah. even in the case of trust arbitration clauses so so different different clauses will, may have different you know different impacts but i think on proper law we would we would apply our pil uh the Override to that is quite limited. It's public policy, but that's 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 quite limited. And it 
simple example of that, not perhaps related to breach, is if you if you have a, a clause that is perpetual, right? It, you know, a trust that is perpetual under a foreign law and you admitted that here, would that would that work? Um, I would say probably it does work, and there are stacks of you know stacks of Jersey trusts that are administered by Singapore uh, trustees. You know, so many things would point to PIL, um, and and you know there is a possibility of a you know, public policy override, but it's probably not that wide. Mm -hmm. And any views, uh, Victor Woodham, on this one? Uh, I'll I'll just I'll just add in. Um, maybe to to explain to the attendees the difference right between uh, a situation and, and a trust and a normal contractual provision right mm. so in a normal contractual provision you would not have the singapore courts um uh, uh saying that the that the uh, the, the law uh, which was governing law which was chosen which would apply right would apply mm. um, but in the case of trust um you know, and I think there's an argument that uh, the Singapore courts, or the courts in general, have an inherent jurisdiction to supervise, and yeah. the weight to be given to such clauses is uh, less than in contractual cases. Right. But I would think that the, the default position would be to still recognize the governing law provided. Uh, and then, you know, maybe in very, very, very narrow cases um, to persuade the court otherwise. Mm. Wunham, any, any views on this? Yeah, I concur. So we look at it at different levels. Um, number one is privity of contract. And so contract is made, it's valid. The courts would generally give credence to what was the choice of law um, yeah. expressly stated. So mm -hmm. if there's no challenge to validity that there was fraud or uh, the, the person had, mm -hmm. did not have mental capacity to, to uh, choose the right law, so then that would be given. So the default position would be that, that foreign law would be recognized and you call for uh, foreign legal experts to give the evidence. And I agree with Len Chuan and, and Vigna that uh, by and large, the, the Singapore courts would um, allow the foreign legal provisions to apply unless it's clearly against uh, Singapore public policy, which is extremely difficult in the case of a private trust. Hmm. I mean, Tony, from your perspective, do, do you, what's, what's your view on administering uh, foreign law trusts in Singapore. Do you do you worry, or what's the what's the issue internally? On can we rely on all of these provisions in Singapore? Mm. Do we worry about the potential for Singapore to disapply any of this? Yeah, as part yeah, of this I assumption. Mean, I mean, I certainly think that there's there's a a, a risk uh, that they that they won't. Um, mm. I do, from a practical point of view, I do think that we take the view that what you need to really look at is the original intention and the original purpose of that uh, trust structure. I think if you look at the uh, Quachiani case, I mean, there was so much uh, shape shifting with, uh, yeah. uh, you know, with, with, with that scenario that it was almost incumbent on the, the Privy Council to step in and, uh, yeah. uh, and do something about that. And I would think and hope that the Singapore, uh, you know, courts would, uh, you know, would, would do the same. But I think if, uh, if all going, you know, all being equal, if the trust is following its original, uh, you know, intention, um, even if, you know, and and even if if the settler wanted to change it afterwards, if we actually stuck and uh, and enforced that original thing, I think I think the courts would uh, would you know would apply the foreign law. Right. Well, I hope it, they would. Honest yeah. Tendi asking in the context of the settler investment reserve powers trust, if the trust instrument allows the appointment of a successor investment advisor to act upon the demise of the settler, is the investment power valid 
uh, validly vested in the investment advisor, is the trustee protected from liability since the trustee has no power of investment? So this is coming back to an issue of settle reserve powers uh, on itself is just the, the declaratory language under the Trustee Act is basically saying that won't give you an invalid trust. So the question being asked is, can we validly effectively transpose across all of the powers as if it were an office holding position with the settle being the first in the office and then being succeeded by others? And my view would be it's basic common law stuff here and trusts. You can have an office holder and it can be succeeded too, and that would be the context in which that would be drafted. Do we all agree that it's, it's um, the settler reserve position is not solely dedicated to the settler, but we can actually draft in successors after the settler is not around? Do we agree with that? Or do we say that we can only have the settler having reserve power and then therefore after the settler is no longer there, we can't have reserve powers? What's the, what's the view, Woodham? I agree. You can draft it in a trustee and make it clear. Okay. And I agree as well. And, and I agree. Okay. I think there's no other, um, no other uh, sort of relevant questions at that point. So I think we're pretty much almost on time in terms of one and a half hours. So I just say, I sort of end this. Yes, you will get the slides. You you will get the um, the recording will be made available as well, so no problems there. Um, just the the usual admonition that this is not a technical session that you should use in a particularized case. This is obviously board sharing, um, but otherwise uh, everything else will be will be shared with you later on. I thank thank everybody, Tony, and Chuan, uh, Winham, and obviously Vigner. Thank you very much for spending time um, going through this. I know you guys are extremely busy. Uh, we're grappling with the, with the trust industry as it is in COVID-19. But um, I think we call it quits there at the moment. And um, thank you very much. And thanks to all the attendees, over 100 plus, um, who, who um, sat on this and listened through. Okay, thank you very much. And I think we'll call it quits today. <laughs>